This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Listening to Manawatu People's Radio. Kia welcome to Calling All Workers, the weekly radio show from Unions Manawatu. I'm John Shannon. You can contact us on Facebook at Unions Central or by email at rebelshot, that's R E B E L S H O T, at connect, K I N E C T dot co dot NZ. Calling All Workers, the purpose of the show is to raise the profile of unions, advertise union events, present stories and issues of interest to workers, and to build community support for union campaigns and activities. Today, we're really blessed with having with us the uh, uh, Craig Rennie, who uh, is going to talk with us about uh, big-picture issues uh, facing unions and working people today. Uh, welcome along, Craig, to uh, call, Calling All Workers. Great to have you aboard. Can you tell listeners uh, a bit about uh, who you are and what your role is with the CTU? Good morning, John. Um, hi. Um, as I say, my name is Craig Rennie. I'm the um, economist and director of policy at the New Zealand Council of Trade Union, um, which means that I try to look after all the policy issues here at the CTU. Um, and I also try to look after what are the key trends and movements in the economy um, I try to keep trade unions informed about the things the government's doing um, in the economy, things like budgets, um, unemployment numbers, that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, I've been doing this. I've been doing the job of an economist now, Craigie, for more than 20 years. Um, before I joined the CTU uh, last year, um, I was the uh, political advisor to the Honourable Grant Robertson, um, who's now Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance. Um, and I worked with Grant for five years, uh, both in government um, and in opposition. Um, you know, if you want to, if you want to know something, if you want to know me in shorthand, essentially, um, I costed the uh, 2017 manifesto that didn't have an 11.7 billion dollar hole in it, um, and I w- and I was responsible for finding the 4.8 billion dollar hole in the National Party's account mm-hmm. in the 2020 manifesto. Um, so, um, so yes. So before then, I before working for Grant, I worked at the Treasury in New Zealand, um, at the Reserve Bank, and at Enby. But I've been doing basically economic research for a really, really long time. Um, yeah, I moved to New Zealand uh, ten years ago. From England. From England, from Newcastle in the hey, UK. Yeah, Newcastle. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Well, that, that certainly uh, sounds very uh, uh, um, comprehensive in terms of your background and. Uh, and um, qualifying to make comment on the economic uh, position of New Zealand. So that's really interesting. Um, we've got a few items to talk about. Yeah, uh, the first one I wanted to touch on was the fair pay agreements. Uh, could you explain to the listeners what FPAs are all about, 
why are they important? Um, and, you know, there's a perception, I think, that FPOs may be for low-paid, ununionized groups, but I think it's a concept that's wider than that. Sure. Um, so <clears throat> the first thing to say is that there's been a lot of disinformation recently about what, or a lot of bad information about what fair pay agreements are, and I'm really pleased to clear sort of this up. Fair pay agreements um, are nothing unusual around the rest of the world. Most developed countries have some form of what we in New Zealand would call a fair pay agreement. Essentially, they're an agreement between a group of employees and a group of employers um, to create minimum standards for an occupation or for an industry. Um, so, for example, um, in the bus drivers, um, you could have a, an agreement between all of the workers in, 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 the, in the industry, between all of the employers, that all bus drivers will be paid a minimum of a certain amount. Um, and that's what a fair pay agreement really is. It creates a common flaw or a common understanding of what the minimum terms and conditions are for workers in an industry or in an occupation. Um, and they're negotiated uh, you know, in good faith between employers and employees. So that'd be similar to the award system that we had in New Zealand prior to the 1980s? And extremely similar to the award system that takes place in Australia now. Right. Um, where, you know, so we have, they, they have award systems for the majority of their workforces and they provide for, um, you know, agreements in, in the industry. Um, and, you know, Australia has a, a really strong um, economy um, and one with better wages um, and better productivity than New Zealand. And because we hear a lot of, a lot of you know, stories, uh, particularly from, you know, our friends in the business community. Um, and um, in terms of the, um, uh, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, what we're doing, um, you know, here, um, this isn't a thing that's going to increase unemployment. It's not going to stop employers from negotiating freely with their employees. All it does is it creates a, a, a base minimum um, right. upon which everybody understands. So it sets a, 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 a level and then employers and employees can bargain above that. Uh, Absolutely. Second-tier bargaining, as it were. Absolutely. Employers and employees are completely at liberty to, 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 to bargain for, you know, any term or condition that they want to. It just, it just has to be above that, that minimum floor. Um, and again, the minimum floor exists um, crucially to do two things. One, to stop the race to the bottom. We've seen in lots of industries that the costs of competition have been not borne by companies, but the costs of competition have been passed on to workers and their families in the, in the terms of, in the, in the consequence of lower wages and as a consequence of poorer terms and conditions. Um, and two, this actually protects good employers. This protects the kinds of employers who want to make sure that they're you know, delivering good work and good terms and conditions to their employees. Um, and it stops, them, stops the bad employers from essentially trying to, out, to push them out of the marketplace by pushing the costs of those competitions onto their workforce. What do you take from the Business New Zealand decision not to participate in the process. I mean, uh, to, to be honest, John, um, there's, it, it's not unexpected. You know, Business New Zealand have been uncomfortable for a really long period of time. It would have been big news if they'd written a document saying they wanted to be involved. That would have been huge. Um, but for them to say that they, that they don't want to be involved, you know, it isn't that isn't that surprising? And to be frank, their involvement in this um, uh, is a very very small part of the overall FPA uh, structure and bill that will hopefully come before Parliament. And so nothing, them deciding not to be involved doesn't actually stop FPAs from happening, nor does it stop 
um, you know, uh, um, FPAs from being created. In fact, you know, it probably actually means that it will happen faster. So what is the time frame? Um, well, the minister has indicated that he would like an FPA bill um, as soon as possible, um, you know, into the House. Um, you know, we look forward to receiving that. It's, it's, you know, it's essentially Christmas now. And so, you know, you'd be looking in the new year before you saw a, a, a bill in the House. But we've been, you know, we've been, we, we and businesses have been working with the minister on this for a really long time. And we, we feel confident there'll be something fairly soon. So the planning by unions to around the introduction of FPAs, you're sort of identifying industries where this might be of uh, significant benefit? Well, we are, but I think it's really important to say here that any union, whether affiliated to the CTU or not, um, can make an application to for um, a fair pay agreement once they become live. Um, the, the threshold test for an FPA application is that um, uh, an application must be actively supported by uh, 10% of the workforce or by 1,000 members, whichever is lower. Mm. Um, and so we were, we're anticipating that there'll be lots of us, but, you know, clearly we would want to see there are some industries like, you know, as we mentioned, bus drivers, supermarket workers, security guards, cleaners, uh, ACE workers, where we can see a very clear case for a fair pay agreement and we can see a very clear case over time of where their you know, workers in those industries have been particularly badly affected by the reforms over the past few years. And so, you know, we'll be working, you know, to, to try and bring those forward as quickly as we can. But, you know, it's really important right now that everybody understands on your radio show that um, it's, it's simply any union can make an application once it has the minimum number of workers in coverage um, actively supporting the application. Right. Um, we might move on to another uh, topic, I think, both the fair pay agreements and the issue of social unemployment uh, insurance are quite radical initiatives that this government is uh, getting traction on now and uh, moving along with it. So they're really quite exciting opportunities, aren't they? But with regard to uh, social unemployment insurance, I, I want to just quote from uh, Grant Robertson in his budget mm. speech. We have also learned lessons from COVID-19. One of those is that just as occurred under the Canterbury earthquakes and the GFC, the government found itself having to put in place ad hoc measures to protect the income of New Zealanders who had lost their jobs. We did this with the COVID-19 income relief payment. At the urging of Business New Zealand and the Council of Trade Unions, we have committed to the development of a social unemployment insurance scheme. Many countries around the world have such a scheme. We are investigating an ACC-style scheme that would provide 80% of income for a fixed period of time with a minimum and maximum caps linked to training opportunities. The proposal is being developed by a tripartite working group with Business New Zealand and the CTU. This sounds really quite an exciting uh, development in uh, social welfare in New Zealand. Oh, well, I'm, I'm certainly excited by it, and I certainly think it is a really positive step. Um, you know, and I, and I, I, I just want to pick up on a word that you used there, uh, John. You called these quite radical steps, fair pay agreements and social unemployment insurance, and they certainly are radical in the New Zealand experience, but again, a bit like fair pay agreements, they're incredibly common around the rest of the world. And in fact, New Zealand's almost alone in the developed world in not having um, some form of social unemployment insurance. And there's only pretty much us in Australia together, and that's it. Even the USA, the home of capitalism, has uh, social unemployment insurance. Um, 
uh, uh, would it be benefit if I just explained briefly what it, what it is and, and, and sort of uh, how it might work? Please yeah, do. sure. So around the rest of the world, um, what happens is that um, you know, if you lose your job, generally speaking through no fault of your own, so you, know, um, you, you get laid off or you get ill or something else, um, then um, the uh, social unemployment system kicks in and provides you with um, a level of income for a defined period of time, um, which relates to the level of income that you had prior to your job loss. Um, so, um, you know, if you were to do this in, in Denmark or the Netherlands uh, or Sweden, um, you would get, you know, 60, 80 um, percent, up to 90 percent in Denmark of your income um, uh, paid for via a scheme, which is paid for via a levy on both employers and employees. Um, that scheme um, would continue to pay you that for a, a, you know, a sufficiently long period of time to essentially smooth your income loss and to give you time to find the right job, a job that a good job that meets your skills it means that you can keep you, you can you can you know you can you can get a job which has prospects in the future rather than just um, which is what we get now in New Zealand which is where um, uh, employees panic and when they lose their job they take the first job that's available which often pays a lot less than the job that they had previously doesn't use all their skills and means that they face uh, what we call in the trade in the economic trade wage scarring it effectively means that they earn a lot less in the future because of the jobs, the job loss they had. Now, when we try to measure that, um, um, our friends at Motu, the economics um, uh, economists over there, their um, central estimate is that in a good year, that wage scarring costs the country $3 billion. And in a bad recession year, that wage scarring costs the country $15 billion. Um, and what we're looking to do is to provide people with a temporary bit of support, a little bit of cushioning, so that they can find the night, find the right job, do some retraining if necessary, you know, move into the next career, but do so safe in the knowledge that they're not going to see the kind of huge income loss that they see right now. So would it replace redundancy provisions and collective agreements? Absolutely not. So, um, you know, they're part of your remuneration right now. They're part of your pay if you're in a collective agreement. So then certainly not envisaged to replace anything in terms of those uh, those existing provisions. There is some. I've heard some controversy among from sort of uh, well, poverty action groups and things like that mm. um, of opposition to this. The uh, Auckland poverty action group says that two-tier welfare system, deep yeah. race, racial and gendered inequality, unemployment insurance will embed such a division. New research. Uh, by Louise Humphrey suggests it will lead yeah. to the separation of people into deserving and undeserving. Uh, have you got any comment about that? You know, is it a is of it course. a Kuru class? Um, um, no. Yeah, you've you've been listening to Bernard Hickey. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, uh, I guess. Um, uh, there's, okay, a couple of quick things. One is um, I would agree with them entirely if this was permanent. So if we were creating a permanent, higher-paid level of welfare, you would be absolutely right. But we're not. This is a time-limited scheme. You get the money for a period of time. And it's designed to cushion the blow of job loss and to support people into good work. And that's true of somebody on $30,000, on $40,000, $50,000, $60,000, $80,000. So it's not designed to be a permanent second tier of welfare support. It's temporary. It's what you get for a period of time to help you to help you manage, you know, the costs of living that, that we have 
you know, little control over when we're in work. You know, that if you're in a good job and all of a sudden the employer pulls the pin, you've still got to pay the rent. You've still got to pay the mortgage. You've still got to pay the car. And that's designed to manage those risks. And um, so I, I don't agree that, there's a, that there's, we're, we're delivering a two-tier welfare state. Instead, what we're doing is we're making sure that for the majority of individuals, they've got some income. Because the, rea- the reality is in New Zealand is that the majority of workers, and I think it's approximately two-thirds of workers, actually get nothing out of the welfare system. Because when they lose their job, their partner's working. And because welfare, access to welfare is on a household basis in New Zealand, that means that they can't get any unemployment benefit. It means they can't get any accommodation supplement support or income-related rent support. So it's about making sure that that group has something and gets some income support and helps reduce the wage scarring, which costs everyone in the country. What uh, what are the prospects for this? What, do, take a punt politically, do you think it's going to succeed? Well, we've been you know actively engaged with um, you know, uh, with Business New Zealand and with the government in the space, we've had really good conversations with them, you know, and we've had really good, um, you know, uh, we've been working really intensely on the policy details of this. I really, I'm really optimistic and I really hope that we can get somewhere because it's a really necessary, um, you know, program. You know, um, to, 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 a, to, to Triple AP's point um, about, you know, whether or not this, this, this creates, you know, this further entrenches racial and gender discrimination in workplaces. Um, when we look at the statistics for who gets laid off in New Zealand, um, uh, Māori get laid off more often than Pākehā, and yet they get less from the welfare state. Um, they get, uh, Pacifica communities get laid off more quickly than Pākehā. Women get laid off more quickly or more often than men, and they're the ones actually who would benefit from this scheme. So because of that, I think there's a real opportunity here to help use this, to help manage the, the, the economic change that we're inevitably going to see in the country is a consequence of things like climate change, is a consequence of automation, the future of work. And it's a, real, it's a real tool, a really powerful tool to help us manage those changes. And so therefore, I think there's a real chance that we'll see this come through. Right. Could we just move on to, I suppose, the, the big issue of the day, COVID? Um, it's had a number of economic implications, obviously, with uh, impacts mm. on, uh, on businesses and... Um, you know, we've been seeing uh, with the uh, support payments and so on, a large increase in government spending. And there's this thing called quantitative easing, which, uh, quantitative easing, yeah. which uh, is talked about a bit in the media. How, what do you feel, just over the off the top of your head, what's the story with COVID and the economy and the impact on working people? Sure, so the, I, think, I think the first answer is, is that we are at the end of the beginning for COVID rather than at the beginning of the end. Um, where there are new waves of COVID, new variants of COVID, and you know, I, I think we're a long way off before we're able to say that we've managed and that we, we've got through completely that you know the, the challenges that COVID's going to bring. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the government has uh, instituted um, unprecedented measures, frankly, um, in New Zealand's economic history um, in, in managing COVID. Spent, you know, has, has put billions of dollars of resources into managing. The, the response and making sure that households and incomes had had incomes during COVID period. But I think um, where we're likely to see what, what we've seen in New Zealand is a quick bounce back from um, the initial COVID lockdown. Um, we have GDP statistics uh, next week on the 16th um, when uh, we're likely to see um, that, you know, whether or not that bounce back has continued. Um, and with the Auckland lockdown, that's probably not likely to be the case. 
Um, but at the moment, we've got record low unemployment, 3.4%. We've got strong wage growth, not as strong as we'd like. Um, but the key challenge is going to be maintaining that momentum and making sure that as we recover from COVID generally, um, that we're not passing the costs of that onto those who um, don't have the, or we're making sure we're passing the costs of that onto those with the broadest shoulders and those with the biggest ability to pay, rather than passing those down onto onto those with the least ability to pay and, and to, to workforces that can't pay for it. And, so, you know, we've done really well, but, you know, it's about maintaining the momentum from here. And inflation and CPI increasing, that, uh, that's got to be a worry, does it? Well, I mean, there's, there's a, you, Jenny, that's a really good question. And sort of, you know, I, if you've got four hours, I could sit you down and chat <laughs> you through sort of, you know, the key, the key, the key just, just the top issues in that bit. But at, at a really high level, um, there are two schools of thought here with the current inflation numbers that we have. One of which is that the current inflation spike that we have is essentially temporary. It relates to supply chain issues. It, replace, it relates to uh, commodity issues. It, re- it relates to um, the fact that we've seen that some of the economies in Europe and the U.S. and elsewhere are sort of getting back to normal, and there's a lot of catch-up spending that's taking place from their prolonged lockdowns that we saw, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and then there's another school of thought, um, and, uh, which is led by the majority of the private banks around the world, which essentially is that this is a more um, sustained phenomenon, and it's here to stay, and we'll see long-term interest rate increases um, uh, to manage this. Now, you know, um, if you ask me personally, I'm, I'm certainly more of the former than the latter. I think that the temporary inflation spike that we have um, is temporary, but that inflation in the long run may be slightly higher. And what that does is that reinforces the case for making sure that the, uh, the minimum wage increases need to match those uh, inflation changes, that fair pay agreements help workers uh, see their wages uh, at least keep up with those cost of living increases. Um, and if I might finally, one of the biggest drivers of um, the last uh, inflation change um, was uh, the cost of uh, building a home. And that just speaks to the number of new houses that are currently being built in New Zealand right now. Right. I, I would like to just touch on, if I could, the book that uh, has recently come out from Max uh, Rashbrook, uh, yep. Too Much Money. Um, I see he's saying in the mid-1980s, the wealthiest 1% owned an already disproportionate 16% of the country's assets. As far as we can tell from limited data, the figure has skyrocketed since then to 25%. Um, that, uh, and it goes in the last 40 years, the power of employers has risen sharply, particularly mm. due to their increased status in public debates and their ability to move or threaten to move operations offshore if they do not like government policies. Conversely, the power of workers has diminished as the numbers covered by trade unions has fallen from 70% to just 17%. What's your comment on that? Oh, well, I mean, uh, I've read Max's book. Um, it's a fantastic um, you know, Tom, I'd highly recommend anybody who's, who really cares about what's happened to wealth and inequality in New Zealand, you know, goes out and, and either gets it from the library or, or goes out and purchases it. Um, but, um, you know, I, I'd say, you know, the point that you made right at the beginning there, which is sort of unlimited data, we have, limit, we have really limited understanding of who actually owns wealth in New Zealand and where it's stored. Um, and the limited data we have is probably an underestimate of the kinds of change we've seen wealth in New Zealand over the past few years. Um, and one of the things I would certainly want to see um, you know, more of is, is whether it's the IRD and other agencies really getting into what's actually happened to wealth since 
the, since the, uh, the, the Employment Relations Act and since the reduction in the levels of, of union density across the country, because it's, it's, it's undoubtedly true that we've seen much higher levels of, weight, uh, of both wealth inequality and, but also the proportion of the economy that's uh, on an annual basis that's going to work as through wages and salaries has been declining every year since 2008. So, you know, there's not only a wealth issue to this, there's a salaries and wages issue to this as well. Um, and Max's book really, um, you know, takes you through that step by step in a really clear way. Um, but what we actually need now are some, some practical policies, some mechanisms for helping to stop that. And where do we go from here? I suppose some of it is a bit cyclical, like the uh, prices for meat and dairy at the moment are so high, farmers are really doing it very well. But fundamentally, the fact we have no capital gains taxing in New Zealand is a real negative, isn't it, for working people? Well, certainly it creates a situation in which if you are an investor, um, you can make money, essentially, for free. Um, you can gain um, an income, um, uh, which you can use, um, and, it pr- and it places um, investors in uh, in capital, like housing, at a huge advantage to workers who have to earn a salary or earn wages um, in New Zealand. Um, you know, and, and whilst the government has ruled out um, a capital gains tax in, in you know, whilst the current leader is, well, the current prime minister is the prime minister, um, you know, I think it's one of the things that we're going to have to look at again in the future, because unless there's something that New Zealand knows that the rest of the world doesn't know, because the rest of the world has a capital gains tax pretty much, um, then there's a real opportunity being missed here in New Zealand without one. Right. Now, just to finish off, uh, maybe a comment about uh, Luxon's lacklustre lot has been reshuffled <laughs> and uh, put into uh, place, and I see Paul Goldsmith is to be the National Party's Industrial Relations Policy spokesperson. What do you expect from that? Um, well, um, I hope I hope Paul has a new um, battery in his calculator so that he can actually work out mm. well, you know if he's actually if he's actually added up numbers um, the right way. And like the last time he was finance leader, and he couldn't, and he, and he you know he messed up the numbers in his in his policy. Um, but I think you know for us. Uh, in, in the trade government, you know, um, it's very much a case of we're getting on with the job of working with the government right now um, on its policy priorities. We'll wait and see what the National Party suggests. It, it, you know, Paul Goldsmith has put out a press release already saying that he rejects fair pay agreements. Well, fair enough. Um, I think what we will expect to see is more of the same from them. Um, you know, rejecting fair pay agreements, rejecting minimum wage increases, rejecting, um, you know, increased fairness for workers in workplaces, um, and rejecting the kinds of essential economic reforms that we need to see to deliver the kind of New Zealand I think we all want, which is the kind of, which is the more productive, sustainable and inclusive both economy and society. So, you know, um, I hope and I look forward, um, you know, to, to them coming out with new policies that suggest that, but I'm, I'm not going to hold my breath, John. Thank you very much, Craig, for this conversation. It's been most enlightening, most interesting, and I hope we can get you back on the show in the future. Thanks very much. Delighted, Craig. delighted. Thanks. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.